All right, will you please take your Bibles with me this morning and open them to Luke chapter 1. We're going to have a, uh, another week of special music. Well, we're going to have lots of special music this Christmas Eve, of course, and for our service. But next Sunday, we are also going to have another round of special songs. Um, you don't want to miss that. Luke chapter 1. We're going to be reading verses 26 through 38 for our text this morning on this fourth and final Sunday of Advent. Luke 1, beginning at verse number 26. Follow along with me as I read. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be since I am a virgin? And the angel said, answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her who was called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am a servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Lord, we ask that your spirit would come now and prepare our hearts, Lord, as he has already done this morning through our worship. Deposit life-changing eternal truth from your word directly into our hearts this morning through this text. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to invite you to think for a moment, what is the hardest thing that you have ever had to do? The hardest thing you've ever had to do. I know in my house, in particular, our, our kids think that the hardest thing they've ever been asked to do is to to clean their room. Life is full of hard things. Making a living is hard. Being married is hard. Raising a family is hard. Working a job is hard. Growing old is hard. Being a Christian is hard. <laughs> 
Jesus frequently said and did things, hard things, that, that caused people to walk away from him. And when we look throughout the pages of Scripture, we find that God rarely asks his people to do anything that isn't hard. He asked Abraham to sacrifice his promised son Isaac. He asked Moses to return to Egypt and stand before a tyrant Pharaoh and say, let my people go. He asked a shepherd boy, David, to be king. He asked the prophets to speak to a stubborn and rebellious people. He asked the apostles to give their lives for the spread of the gospel. And God asked us also to do hard things and to live through hard seasons in our lives. And regardless of whatever our particular circumstances are this morning, these hard things the Lord brings into our lives often bring with them questions like, why? Or how will God use this disaster or this challenge or this obstacle for his purpose and glory? How will he use this suffering? And you fill in the blank, whatever this is. How will he use it for his glory? How will he use me? How will he, he, he use you? for his calling and purpose and glory. And in this text this morning, we, we meet a young lady who was asked to do something that no one else would ever be asked to do. And her experience is a display of God's redemptive purpose and power that can come to us and reassure our own troubled hearts this Christmas as we walk through our own hard things. So I want us to look at this passage and sort of outline it by way of three main thoughts. And the first is that God's extraordinary grace comes to Mary's ordinary life. Verse 26 in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. Now, Nazareth, <laughs> Nazareth was a, a very unremarkable city. It really wasn't even, it's not a city by our standards today. Probably a population of only 200 to 500 people. It was a poor agricultural village with absolutely zero significance. It is, in fact, what prompted Nathaniel in John chapter 1 when hearing that Jesus was from Nazareth. He said in John 1.46, can anything good come out of Nazareth? You know, after we moved here a few years ago, some actually more than one person asked me this. One person in this church asked me this, and several people outside. 
after we moved here from uh, North Carolina, they said, why in the world would you want to move from North Carolina to New Jersey, the armpit of America? That's what it was called. Never heard that before. Never heard anything called an armpit. So as New Jerseyans, we might be able to understand Nazareth as the armpit of Galilee. Not a place that many people would move to if they had any other choice. But it was home to a young peasant girl named Mary, who was most likely between the ages of 14 and 16. She was legally pledged, betrothed, our versions say, she was legally pledged to be married to a man named Joseph who was of the house of David. He was a descendant of King David. She was, by the cultural standards of her time, living a very ordinary life. But Mary's ordinary life was about to receive a divine interruption when she is visited by the angel Gabriel, who, by the way, along with Michael, are the only two named angels in Scripture. But Gabriel comes to Mary, who one commentator calls a nobody in a nothing town in the middle of nowhere. He comes with a life-changing announcement. Indeed, this is why we call this passage the Annunciation. And this, this announcement, this annunciation begins in verse 28. Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. This is a greeting of sovereign, undeserved grace. Favored one comes from a word in the Greek that, that means recipient of God's freely bestowed grace. Recipient of God's grace. Now if you're familiar with Roman Catholicism, and I know many of you are, you'll recognize this verse as part of the Hail Mary. That prayer that begins, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Now, my nine-year-old son would only know the Hail Mary as the last play of a football game where the quarterback just chucks the football 50 yards into the end zone and prays that one of his teammates come down, comes down with the ball. But the prayer itself, the Hail Mary, is foundational to Roman Catholic spirituality. The problem with it is that it sees Mary as a source of grace instead of a recipient of grace. The word here in the original is in the passive voice. Now, I don't want to get too theological with you, but this is important. The word's in the passive voice. That means that God's grace was given to her. It was bestowed upon her from outside of herself. It was not a grace that she could then turn give to others. Mary had nothing in and of herself that would merit or attract the grace of God upon her life. She, like all sinners, including you and me, was an undeserving re recipient of God's 
unmerited favor and blessing upon her life. And then Gabriel says, the Lord is with you. Now on the surface, this seems like a very reassuring greeting, right? It seems, this is great, this is good news. But that's not how Mary responded, is it? Look at verse 29. She was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. Young Mary was confused. Why had this angel come to her? Why was he speaking to her with such exalted language? She was nervous and scared. And so the angel said to her in verse 30, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor. That word, grace. You have found grace with God. Mary's fear would be overcome by God's grace because God had chosen to entrust her with a great and unique calling to be the mother of the eternal Son of God. Think about that. Verse 31, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Now notice that God didn't ask Mary if she was up to the task. This wasn't an interview to see if she was a good fit for the job. He didn't ask her if she was willing to do it. No. From eternity past, get this, God predestined Mary for this purpose and raised her up to be the mother of His only begotten Son. There was no other woman to do this task. Not because there was anything special in her, but because God had sovereignly chosen her to do this task. God's extraordinary grace had come to Mary's ordinary life. You know, none of us can really identify with her fully, can we? We can try. We can't fully identify with the mother of our Lord because of the uniqueness of her calling. But we can identify with, with how this divine interruption was a demonstration of God's grace upon her life. You see, we go on living our ordinary lives from day to day to day until the Lord sends us a divine interruption that changes, that alters, perhaps even permanently, the course of our lives. And friends, that can be scary. And we might find ourselves asking the same kind of questions that were going through Mary's heart and mind. What is the Lord doing in this? Why me? Why now? What is this going to mean for my future? See, God called Mary 
And he equipped Mary with his presence. The Lord is with you and his grace. You have found favor with God. And he does the same for us, friends. So do not, do not despise the ordinariness of your life. God comes to the lowly. He comes to the armpits of the world, to the poor, to the weak, to the insignificant, to the unknown. And He interrupts our lives to display His divine grace and redemptive purpose. So if you're here this morning or or perhaps even watching online and your life has been interrupted and you're confused, and you're scared, hear Gabriel's words to Mary. The Lord is with you. Secondly, we see in this passage that God's redemptive promise is fulfilled in Mary's divine son. His redemptive promise is fulfilled right here. In Mary's divine son, verse 31 says, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and he will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. and He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there will be no end. You see, friends, when our first parents... Adam and Eve, who, by the way, were real historic people. When our first parents listened to the the lies of the deceiver and rebelled against their creator, we would have done the same. Okay, let's, let's not get ahead of ourselves. If we were in their shoes, we would have done exactly what they did. But when they rebelled against God and brought the curse of sin and death upon all creation, embedded In the curse on the serpent, the deceiver, was a promise. You've heard me talk about it. The Lord said in Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between between you and the woman, he's speaking to the serpent, between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That's the beginning of that scarlet thread we trace all throughout redemptive history. And now 4,000 years later in Nazareth, this promise would come to a peasant girl and Mary's son would be the fulfillment of Genesis 3.15. And 700 years before Mary was born, the prophet Isaiah would write, The virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. It's Isaiah 7.14. Of course, Emmanuel means God with us. In Isaiah 9.6, the prophet says, For unto us a child is born, To us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. 
And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David, and here we're going to connect the dots. From Isaiah to Nazareth. On the throne of his of the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The author of Hebrews, reflecting on Christ as the fulfillment of God's word spoken through the prophets, he says in Hebrews 1.1, Long ago, and at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. I just read you two texts from Isaiah. I just read from Moses in Genesis. God has spoke to our fathers by the prophets, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom He also created the world, And then down in verse 8 of Hebrews 1, we read, Of the Son, God says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. You see, friends, this baby king was the culmination of all the promises of an everlasting kingdom. He is the true and better David. And though born in poverty and born in insignificance, he would be, what did the angel say? He would be called great, the son of the Most High. Is he Mary's son? Yes. Fully human like her? Yes. Like you? Yes. Like me? Yes. But he is more than Mary's son. He is God's son. And unlike his mother Mary, unlike you and me, he is fully divine. The promised son that would come from Mary's womb was the eternal son and divine second person of the triune God through whom all things were created. So let's be careful to get our theology right here, friends. The birth of God's Son was not the beginning of God's Son. John 1.1 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. And without Him was not anything made that was made and then. Then down in verse 14, John writes, And the Word became flesh. This eternal Word, the creator of the cosmos, became flesh and dwelt among us. He came to to tabernacle, if you will. That's what the word means. To, To dwell among us. And we have seen His glory. The glory is of the Only Son from the Father. He is full of grace and truth. Let me make an appeal to all of our fathers here today. Or mothers here today. 
Don't let your children grow up thinking that Jesus began to exist at Christmas. Don't let your children grow up to be heretics. Teach them that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who had no beginning but stepped into our world through His incarnation in human flesh, sent as the fulfillment of God's redemptive promise in Genesis 3.15 to save for Himself a people upon which He would display the riches of His grace. Friends, Christmas is high theology. Listen to Paul, the apostle, sum all this up in Galatians 4.4 under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He says, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem, to save those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Here's the point. This little baby in Bethlehem's manger is God the Father keeping His promise. And you know, we have the promises of God all wrong in the church today. We've got them all wrong. We think God's promises are to give us happy, comfortable, fulfilling lives. I saw it yesterday, just a, 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 a friend, I think a friend, a Facebook friend, I saw a picture. It was a prayer. It was supposed to be God's prayer for us, and it was that He would make us happy, comfortable, and at peace. That sounds, that sounds sweet. God hasn't promised any of that. God has promised us Christ. And Christ alone, and friends, Christ is enough. We don't need all of that if we have Christ. The third, thirdly and lastly, we see in this passage that God's miraculous power overcomes Mary's human condition. I struggled with how to phrase this. I don't, I don't even like the way that sounds. God's miraculous power overcomes Mary's human condition, Mary's reality, Mary's limitation, whatever you want to call it. Verse 34, Mary said to the angel, How will this be? How will this son be born? How will this conception... What, what, is, what is all this about? How will it be since I am a virgin... She was starting to get it. She was starting to pick up what Gabriel was putting down. She was believing. She was confused. Mary knows how babies are, are made, so to speak, right? She gets, she gets it. And she knows she's never been with a man. She's engaged to a righteous man, engaged, you know what I mean, betrothed. It's more than our modern idea of, of engagement. It's legally binding. She was committed to living within God's boundaries of sexual purity. 
So how would this son be born to her, this divine son of the Most High? The angel said to her in verse 35, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. And the power of the Most High will overshadow you. And therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. You see, friends, there wasn't anything miraculous about the birth of Jesus. It was the conception of Jesus that was the miracle. He was born just like other children are born. Came out the same way. But he was not conceived the same way. This Virgin Mary would be overshadowed by the creative power of God, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. She would give birth to a holy child, conceived by the purity of God's Spirit, not by any man. And here, brothers and sisters, we have one of the most spectacular miracles in all of Scripture, sitting right here before our eyes this morning. You see, we live in a culture of scientism. Don't let anyone tell you they don't have religious belief. They may not believe in the God of the Bible, but they have their own God. And for most of us in our culture, and the modern Western culture at large, it's scientism that scoffs at the reality of miracles. We think that we can explain everything by natural processes. And so the supernaturalism of the Bible is dismissed as pure myth. The notorious professor of Ox- at Oxford, an evolutionary biologist, Richard Dawkins, you, you've heard his name, I'm sure, he says this, Any belief in miracles is flat contradictory, not just to the facts of science, but to the spirit of science. Dawkins goes on to say this, The virgin birth, the resurrection, the raising of Lazarus, Even the Old Testament miracles are all freely used for religious propaganda and they are very effective with an audience of unsophisticates and children. But friends, Christmas is where the naturalism of modern man is stopped dead in its tracks. In fact, the truthfulness of Christianity and the very possibility of salvation at all depends on the virginal conception of the Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus was not conceived by the Holy Spirit, then He is not divine. If He is not divine, then He is not God. And if He is not God, then He cannot be our Savior because only God can save. Isaiah 43.11 says, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. In December of 2016, Andy Stanley, you, you might know his father, Charles Stanley, but the son, Andy Stanley, he's the pastor of the, uh, the, the North Point Community Church in Metro Atlanta. I think one of the largest churches in America, I think the fifth largest church 
They have close to 40,000 people a week. In a December, in a Christmas sermon, believe it or not, Andy Stanley is, uh, he, he, he diminished the importance of the virgin conception of Jesus. This is what he said. He said, if somebody could, and he's talking about Jesus here, if somebody could predict their own death and their own resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world because Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Jesus. It really hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. That's, that's pastor of one of the largest evangelical churches in America. Yes, Christianity hinges on the resurrection of Jesus, but if the Jesus who was raised from the dead was not the Jesus who was supernaturally conceived, then he's not the same Jesus. The Christian faith is a supernatural faith built on a supernatural book. And friends, the two, the two testaments of Scripture are guarded by, the, by two miracles. Six-day creation, Genesis 1, and the virginal conception of Jesus. And if we can't accept those, then there is no reason to proceed any further with anything in this book. And most of the church has already surrendered creation. And we're seeing more and more Christians, and especially pastors like Pastor Stanley here, who are starting to diminish the importance of the supernatural conception of Jesus. But Gabriel, will have, he will have none of that. With one sentence, in verse 37, he strikes down the the naturalism of man. He strikes down the human, the limits of human belief. And he says, nothing will be impossible with God. And he even tells Mary in verse 36, he says, just, just go check out your cousin Elizabeth. She's barren, too old to have a baby, and she's already six months pregnant. Because nothing is impossible with God. Oh, friends, Christmas is the end of doubt. If God can cause a virgin to conceive a divine son, an eternal son, apart from any human involvement whatsoever, then He can overcome your human limitation. He can accomplish His purpose in your life too. You may feel like, you may feel like that this morning. Like, like God can't do anything with your life because of some something is just holding you down. Some limitation. Maybe it's your, your education or your past or your health or your family circumstances or your job some limitation friends God can 
overcome your limitation. He can use your life to accomplish his purposes. Look by faith on Mary's miracle baby. Look by faith on her miracle baby in the manger this Christmas and see God's redemptive power on display. Let your troubled heart be comforted by the eternal purpose of God to come into our world through the person of His Son to take our sin. To he Listen, He entered our humanity, our humanness. And took our sin and guilt upon himself to bring salvation to all who would turn from their sin and turn from their self and believe on him. God takes those who come to the cross of his son in repentance and faith and does something even more impossible than the virginal conception of his eternal son in the womb of a young unmarried peasant girl. What's more impossible than that? The forgiveness of sin. That God could forgive an infinitely holy God. That He could forgive our sin. Friends, that is the hardest thing in all creation. It is the hardest thing, the most impossible thing to have ever been done. But through this miraculous incarnation the sinless perfect flawless life the substitutionary the vicarious atoning death and the victorious justifying resurrection of his eternal son the second person of the triune God the Lord Jesus Christ. Through all of that, through all of that person, through all of that work, God has accomplished the impossible. He has come to us to forgive our sin. Friends, this is our hope this Christmas. And if you have never turned away from your sin and from your goodness, you have no hope. This Christmas. For you, it's going to be all about the party, the food, the presents. That's the end of your hope. If you have never turned away from your sin and put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you must trust in Christ, this Mary's miracle baby. Friends, do it today. Let's pray.